This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, September 16th, 2018, at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at rdchurch.com. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. This is the word of God. Pray with me this morning as I ask God, just move me out of the way and say what he needs to say. Heavenly Father, we praise you. You alone are worthy. We are not here to be entertained. We are not here to even be educated. We are here to praise the name of Jesus. To be reminded of why we exist. To be reminded of where our destiny lies. Lord, we look out at this world and we can easily be captivated by the things of it. Even fearful by the things that are in it. But it is these moments, Lord, each week that we gather to be in your presence amongst your people to be reminded of what is true. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you did not leave yourself a complete mystery, but you have revealed much. And that that word has the power to transform us from the inside out. So I pray that it will be the sword, the double-edged sword that is sharp and living and active that it will cut us deeply exactly where we need surgery. The Holy Spirit, through Your Word, You will convict those of us who need conviction and comfort those of us who need comfort and convert those of us who need to know the saving grace of Jesus. Do Your work, Lord, and we'll stay out of Your way and rejoice at what we see. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So glad to be here. I'm so glad to be preaching this particular sermon. We're continuing in a short series, five parts, called Am I Saved? Which is not a question that we probably would ask ourselves unless someone perhaps challenged us to do just that. And that's what we're doing. Using primarily the first epistle of John, we have ventured into a self-examination to see whether we, not they, whether we are in the faith. This is a self-examination, not a peer examination, not a child examination, but a self-examination. 
Now, biblically, those described as being saved, specifically saved to God, saved by God, and even saved from God, these are not people who have simply had a change of mind. The Bible describes the saved as those who have had a spiritual heart transplant. By grace, through faith, God removes this heart of stone that resisted Him and replaces it with a Spirit-filled heart of flesh that loves Him. Not perfectly, but definitively and increasingly. God becomes their center. And God's ways slowly over time become their ways. Now last week we considered some of these changes and particularly how God's salvation changes a person's heart attitude toward the person and work of Jesus Christ. That their disposition towards Jesus, who Jesus is and and what He did, completely changes. Now the Apostle Paul summarized this change really well in his first letter to the Corinthians in chapter 1, verse 18. Here's what he said, For the word of the cross, that, the word of the cross, he says, is folly, foolishness, crazy talk, stupid. It's folly to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. That's a change. That's very different. Something's happened for that change to have occurred. Salvation is, as we saw, about believing in Jesus now, about this increasing and strong desire of being with Jesus. And until we are with Him, it is a matter of belonging to Jesus. And the idea of belonging or or knowing Jesus beyond facts. Salvation is not just an assent to facts. not just an acceptance of certain truths. There's an intimacy, a, a, a relational knowing and belonging. That's the core of the Gospel. I recently read, and this was actually in a children's book, so when we talk about the New City Catechism or Jesus Storybook Bible, there's some really awesome truths in these books. And be careful, because if your kids in Kids Road, they're going to become a stronger theologian than you are if you don't start reading them. So open them up and read them, and then you can be the theologian of your home. But in this book, it was quoting a famous preacher named D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of my favorite preachers. He has since passed. But he would sometimes ask people, are you a Christian? And if they said, well, I'm trying, he knew they didn't really understand. Because being a Christian, he said, isn't about trying. It's about trusting. It's not about trusting in what you must do or not do. It's about trusting in what God has done through Christ Jesus on your behalf. So this is what we mean when we talk about a a heart attitude change toward God's Son. When we take our minds off of ourselves, we surrender our self-rule, and we look to Jesus as He overwhelms us and invades us with His love. Now, this morning as we continue in what is a survey, we're kind of skipping around 
the first epistle of John. And the way that it's written very cyclically, it kind of allows us to do that. He repeats himself a lot. It's the style. But I'd like us to consider a new question, and that is another heart question. What do I believe about God's holiness? What do I believe about God's holiness? Now, perhaps you're familiar with the word holiness. We say it a lot. We sang it a lot this morning. But I don't know how often we stop to go, what does this mean? And there are large books written on this. Many sermons preached on this. So I won't give you a comprehensive definition. But quite simply, when we talk about holiness, we're talking about God's utter uniqueness as the one and only Creator and perfect being. He is eternal and He is infinitely more powerful than any creation. His value is supreme. He is immeasurable. He is incomparable. He is morally pure and intrinsically more worthy than anything or anyone in existence. So the pure intensity of His holiness, of His complete otherness, it is so intense that it actually prevents any impurity from being in His presence. Similar to the sun, which I've heard many use to describe this, not perfectly, but it helps as an analogy. The sun is beautiful. The sun is hot. And the closer you get to it, the more it hurts. To the point where it would kill you if you're too close. Not because it's bad, but because it's good. And the same goes with the Lord. That only the perfectly holy can be exposed to His holiness. So the Bible states this very plainly. But we also see this in how God designed the Old Testament tabernacle, Old Testament temple. You may not be familiar with that, but in the Old Testament, God gave designs for a tabernacle that Israel would walk through the wilderness with. And eventually that became the temple that Solomon built. And in his plans, because he designed it, he created this physical separation between what he called the holy place and what he called the most holy place. And the most holy place was the place where his presence dwelt. The place where you couldn't just walk into without dying. And in order to enter into this place, there were elaborate rituals and sacrifices to atone for all of the impurity that the priest might possess. Now all of this separation taught us many things, but it more than anything revealed that God is utterly unique and He is completely pure. His essence is completely different than ours. His power is well beyond ours. His ways are far above ours. He is, uh, we are flawed in every way and He is in His character and nature flawless in every way. And it's important to understand that more than anything, God loves His holiness. And in truth, so do we. Because when we're talking about perfection, we all love perfect love. We all love perfect justice and perfect... Those things we love. We love those things. And so He loves His holiness. For Him to love anything less than that is to actually be guilty of idolatry Himself. 
So he loves his holiness. He cherishes his purity. And therefore, God cannot tolerate wrong. Now, without doubt, God reveals himself as love. And the love of Christ on the cross is the most visible demonstration of that, but it actually bridges that separation between our unholiness and God's holiness. That through Christ, we can actually go into the presence of God. And when He saves us, the Bible says that His Spirit, that same Spirit that dwelled in the temple, comes to dwell in us. There's a huge change. That that God's love not only atones for our sins, but our continued life in faith, and in that love, changes how we view sin. Think about this. If God's holiness, all that I described, if His perfection, if He is dwelling in us, then we naturally, without even trying, begin to respond like God to unholiness. That's the Spirit in us. That is why those who are saved can be described as having a new heart attitude towards sin. They cannot, they will not tolerate ongoing sin. We come to embrace God's grace and mercy towards sinners, but those who are saved also come to embrace God's justice and wrath towards sin. They go together. Now, the late theologian and author and preacher R.C. Sproul once said this, that a God who is all love and all grace and all mercy, but no sovereignty and no justice and no holiness and no wrath is an idol. If we don't abide with the one true God against sin, then the one true God does not abide in us. Our disposition towards sin in our lives, sin in our families, sin in the world reveals whether we're worshiping the one true God or a God of our own making. Now, salvation, I think, changes three things. Not only three things, but three things. Our understanding of sin, our practice of sin, and our confession of sin. And John is going to be very explicit. So we're going to go through three passages, beginning with 1 John chapter 4. If you have your Bible, open to 1 John. We're going to skip to three major passages. First will be 1 John chapter 4. And in this passage, it shows our complete transformation in our relationship to sin. It says, by this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us His Spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Right? We've changed in our view of Jesus. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He in God. And so we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. And by this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he 
is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whenever fears has not been perfected in love. My guess is you've heard the verse, God is love, before. And did you know it was followed up by a verse about judgment? Probably not. It all goes together. So John, as you read 1 John, which you should read regularly, it's very simple to read, it's pretty short, but it's very hard-hitting. He likes the word abide. He likes it in his Gospel and he likes it here. And the word carries with it this idea of staying and, and remaining and continuing with God and not departing. It's very relational. So God saves those who are far from Him. He, he chases them down and He brings them into His family and He dwells with them and He dwells in them. As Jesus even said, He makes His home with them. The indwelling Spirit of God in us is the beginning mark, identifying mark of the Christian. It is the force, if you will, the person in us that is causing us to have a disposition towards different things. This new reality represents a real change in our relationship with God. So John says something that's interesting. He says, we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. Now, I've heard it suggested, I believe it was from Brendan Manning, that perhaps the only question that God will ask on the day of judgment is this. Did you believe I loved you? Did you believe I loved you? See, belief in that love, belief in the cross, that God could radically love us like that, that changes how we relate to God forever. It specifically changes, John says, how we fear God. Now, both the saved and the unsaved, the believer and the non-believer, fear God, but they fear Him differently. The cross changes that. It changes many things, but it definitely changes that. Now, for the unsaved, the fear of God is a genuine, real fear of judgment. It is the fear of eternal death. It is the fear of complete separation from God. And Jesus talked about eternal death. He talked about hell. He talked about the torment and suffering that comes with separation from God often. And I do believe we should talk about it as much as Jesus did. I also don't believe that you're ever going to scare anybody into heaven. So there's got to be more. But there's a fear of God that all men should have, particularly unsaved men. But for the saved, the fear of God is changed. It's different. John says that God's love on the cross gave us something, a new confidence on the day of judgment. We don't fear, for those who are saved, eternal punishment because the penalty for sin has been paid for us once and for all. Fear-filled dread has given way to some kind of 
fear-filled amazement where you look at the love of God and the extent to which you would go to save men who are unholy and you go, whoa. And there's a reverence and an honor that through Christ, our relationship to God changed. It was judge and criminal. A guilty criminal. It was boss employee. More like tyrannical boss employee. But it's changed to father and child. Which is a completely different relationship. Now, this new position with God changes our disposition towards His ways. Towards what He has forbidden and what He has commanded. If it's truly a father and child relationship. See, the Spirit in us gives us a desire to obey, not because we want to avoid punishment, but we want to please our Father and experience joy. See, prior to God saving us, His commands are burdensome. Prior to saving us, when, when a rule confronts what you want to do, recommands something that you don't want to do, we go, you are just a killjoy. You're just a cosmic killjoy who doesn't want me to have my fun. And what happens when it changes into from judge to criminal to father-child we don't look at His commands as burdensome, but now as the loving instructions from a Father who actually wants us to experience the joy that He knows we can experience if we live according to the way He designed us. That's a change. That which was forbidden is like, oh, thank you for saving me from that pain. That which is commanded, thank you for showing me the path to walk to experience new joy. So this new relationship with God changes our relationship to sin. Even changes our definitions of sin. Our disposition towards sin. I believe D.A. Carson said it well. And What I'm trying to describe is something that happens. That's why we have to examine ourselves in the quietness of our, of our own hearts. Like, what, what's going on here? How do I understand my relationship to God? Does he, does he still feel like that judge? When you see Jesus' face, is He like, Hmm, you really messed up. Or is it this, this loving embrace wanting you to live the way that He's designed you? Here's what D.A. Carson said. Those who truly come to know God delight just to know Him. He becomes their center. They think of Him, delight in Him, boast of Him. They want to know more and more of what kind of God He is. And as they learn that He is the God who exercises kindness and justice and righteousness on earth, naturally, they want those same values to prevail, not because their egos are bound up with certain arbitrary notions of justice, but because their center is God and they take their cues from Him and His character. It's their desire. Because faith in Christ puts the love of God in us. And the love of God in us causes us to love God and love the things that God loves. And even hate the things that God hates. Increasingly, not perfectly. 
I have to keep saying that because we put these categories in our mind, in our minds, that we have to have it fully figured out. I'm just suggesting it's increasing. That desire is there and it's increasing. So our understanding of sin and relationship to God changes. But when it changes our understanding of sin, the second thing it changes is our practice of sin. And as John's going to reveal, there's a lot to learn about a person's relationship with God from their relationship with sin. 1 John chapter 3 gives us a really in-your-face statement. And I'll read it slowly so that we really can wrestle with it. Because it uses some very bold truths. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that He appeared in order to take away sins, and in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning. And no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. And whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil because there are only two types of people in the world. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God and nor is the one who does not love his brother. Now this is an important passage. This is a a major self-examining gut check. To see whether we're actually in the faith. In the faith, and John is not mincing words. He intentionally emphasizes the word practice like four or five times in this passage, and it holds the idea of continually sinning. And he boldly identifies that the practice of sinning and the practice of righteousness, continual pursuit of sin, and continual pursuit of righteousness is the defining difference between the children of God and the children of the devil. In fact, John states very plainly in verse 9, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. He cannot keep sinning. Now, we could understand that statement wrongly and really be in some trouble. Understood wrongly, we might believe that John is saying Christians never sin. I won't ask for a show of hands. But my guess is that many of us know and hope that that can't possibly be what it means. But when he makes a statement like, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning, does that mean they never sin? I sinned on the way to church this morning, yelling at my kids, or I've sinned even between that time and now. I'm probably going to sin tomorrow because I know how weak I am. I hope that's not what it means. Others read it wrongly to say, well, Christians sin, but it's never viewed as sin by God. 
Both of those are wrong. Without question, though, there exists this tension between our salvation and our, and our connection to sin. What is our relationship to sin as a Christian, as one who is saved? So it's important to remember that there are three kind of problems, if you will, that, the, that Jesus is fixing and resolved. He resolved two of them, and there are many issues that he resolved, obviously, but there are two in relation to sin that he fixed in his first coming and one that he resolved in his second. In regards to sin, in the first coming, Jesus paid the penalty for sin. He atoned for the sins of anyone who put their faith in him. Their sins past, their sins present, their sins in the future. So the penalty of the sin ultimately has been paid. And also, the book of Romans chapter 6 and elsewhere tells us that it's also had its power removed in some sense. That we can resist sin. We can fight for and practice righteousness. But Jesus has yet to remove the third thing, which is the presence of sin. That will happen at His second coming. So, knowing that sin kind of remains present in this life, we go, well, how do we, how do we know what's our relationship to sin supposed to be like and, and how would I know if I'm actually saved? Well, as I said before, we're talking about increasing heart attitudes and not perfect behavior. And Paul reveals what this is all about in Romans chapter 7. You may be familiar with this passage, you may be not, but it's his own heart attitude. And you have to listen to the heart attitude about what he's saying. About his practice of sin. In Romans 7, verse 15, he says this, For I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, right? He goes, I, I don't know why I do what I do in regards to sin. And I assure you, there are many people here who have said that or are saying that now. I don't know why I continue to go back to that. I don't know why I keep failing and falling in this regard. And what does he say? I don't want to do what I want. I'm doing the very thing I hate. There is a reality of us Christians, those who are saved, of falling, of tripping, of practicing, if you will, or at least sinning in a way that like, man, I keep making this mistake. But his disposition is like, I'm doing the very thing I hate. So the question isn't whether you've committed a sin. The question is, What's your disposition towards that? Because Paul says, I don't do the thing I want. I'm doing the very thing I hate. The very fact that he hates it or despises it and not just the consequences of it is a sign of grace, of the holiness of God in his heart. He says, now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. And so now it's no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. I don't do the good that I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. So we don't understand practicing sin in this epistle to mean committing any sin. 
John doesn't mean that a saved person never sins, but that a saved person at a heart level does not desire to sin. They know it leads to death and dishonor of the Lord. Now, he goes a step further though. He says, they cannot sin. Right? They, they cannot sin. We take that to mean that they cannot keep on sinning without misery in their bones. Without emotional misery. Without physical misery. Because of the spiritual misery they're experiencing. They cannot keep doing it. Now, likely, John in this letter is confronting false teachers who actually declared that Jesus never actually came in the physical flesh. That's why John so often is like, uh, Jesus came in the flesh, whoever confessed Jesus came in the flesh, and so he's combating these false teachers. And in teaching that, they essentially have put a separation between spiritual life and real life or physical life. So they would have argued that, well, it doesn't matter, you know, what you do, you don't have to do anything at all. Just be. And with every lie, there's a little bit of truth in there because we've taught things that sound similar. But they've created a complete separation. And what John is trying to argue that being in God means living for God. That God in you compels you to live differently. It naturally works out in us because God is in us. So practically speaking, if we want to just come down to it, there's a gigantic chasm between being settled with sin and struggling with sin. And if you are settled with sin, that's a problem because a Christian cannot be settled with continual practice of sin. But every Christian will struggle in it. By struggling, I don't mean the saved person will ever completely vanquish it, though I do believe great victory can happen in different parts of our life, but that they are perpetually and always looking, watching, and fighting to resist and put away sin in their life. That's their disposition. The practice of righteousness isn't characterized by this one moment of repentance. All right, I had a moment, I repented, I've turned the reality, and I believe anyone who is saved can vouch for this. It's a daily, weekly, monthly, perpetual turning from sin for an entire lifetime. It is fighting. And even if it's losing a battle, it's getting back up because you know Jesus has won the war. It is failing and falling, but then getting back up, dusting yourself off, moving forward. It is running a race, and even if occasionally you have to stop to get some water or sit on the sidewalk for a second because you tripped up and skinned your knee really bad, you get up and you finish the race. That's struggling in a righteous way. In short, we take sin seriously, and we do so because God took sin seriously. Let us not forget that the primary symbol of our faith is not a manger. We don't see everyone walking around with necklaces of little mangers floating around, which would be really odd, right? We also don't see, um, you know, necklaces of empty tombs. 
Because the symbol of our faith is the cross. And the cross is where we learn, what does God think about sin? The cross doesn't only represent the forgiveness of sin, but it is certainly that, and the love of God is certainly that. But the cost of that love and that forgiveness, it's God's declaration that all sin is serious. And we like to play the game that it's not. Well, you know, lying, murder. And yes, there's certainly greater degrees of sin, but guess what it all is? Lawlessness. It's all lawlessness. If the law says don't lie and don't murder, and the punishment for either one is death, I'm not sure it really matters. There's certainly degrees and horrible consequences for sin that I believe is greater than others, but in terms of lawlessness, it's all serious. We don't have a problem with the big ones. We have a problem with the little ones. And that's why we play the compare game with our sin. Because we can always find someone who's a little worse than us. Or we can always find someone who's a little bit better. Probably should compare ourselves with Jesus and we'll know where to start. But this is why the practice of sin bothers the Christian because the Spirit of God in them demands it. The cross shows us that all sin is serious, that all sin is worthy of death, and that God sacrificed His Son, gave the best He could to fix it. And we're going to stand at the cross and go, eh, it's no big deal. It's no big deal. Sin stirs the Christian. Sin moves the Christian. Sin scares the Christian and grieves the Christian at a heart level. I ain't talking about fake tears and I'm talking about you by yourself with the Lord, your disposition towards sin and the practice of it. Which leads me to a third point. Like if that's true, if 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 we don't even if the saved don't even want to practice sin. Even as they struggle with sin, the confession of sin should be a normal mark of the believer. I want nothing to do with it. The last passage we'll tackle is 1 John chapter 1, where John again says some very plain, direct things that we're quick to dismiss. He says, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light. We've heard his love and he is light. And in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. We'll hit that one later. And the blood of Jesus' Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and the Word's not in us. So this entire examination process, what we're trying to do is go, okay, do I see signs of life in here? Do, are there signs that I have a new heart full of God's Spirit desiring God's holiness? 
And what John says is those who have that, those who are saved, desire to live in the light. Now, naturally, apart from God, in our flesh, no one likes to live in the light. Why? Because you see dirt. Everyone likes to sit at the campfire. Everyone's good looking at the campfire, right? Hey, you look good, I look good, because the lights are low. We all look good in the shadows. Let's keep it there. No one's going to see my dirt and my ugliness. But then you bring the lights up. The brighter the light gets, the more exposed we are. And so we shrink into the darkness and our guilt and our shame, the very things God came to fix. So we desire to live in the light, even if we stumble in trying to do that. But we desire it so much because we know that's where Jesus says He lives. And that's where Jesus says freedom is. That's such a lie from the enemy. Like there's, You're going to get rejected if you come in the light. If, if, you, if you confess, if you expose your sin, oh man, so many people reject you. Do you realize? A, doesn't matter. B, Jesus doesn't reject you. He already saw all the dirt, even that which you have never even committed yet. And He said, while you're a sinner, I'm going to die for you. So we're confessing the sins that He already knows we've committed. Again, John is very direct style, style states, we all have sin. And if you say you don't, you're lying. He's writing to Christians. Right? Basically, don't, don't say you don't got sin. Then you're just like a double sinner because you're lying about the truth. You're prideful, so you're a triple sinner. The question isn't whether you commit sin. The question is whether you confess it when you do. As with many things in the Bible, we can misunderstand confession, right? There's always two ditches on the side of the road. In any road, we fall extremes, and the road of confession is no different. One side of the road, people say, well, I must confess everything or I'm not saved. i got to hit every little sin that I commit or I won't be saved. And on the other ditch... There's the people who say, well, actually, I don't need to confess anything because I am saved. Now, unlike our Catholic friends, we don't believe that there's a class of sin that cause you to lose your genuine salvation. I'm under the firm belief that the Bible teaches that Jesus is the one who saves anyone, and therefore, Jesus will not lose anyone if He's the one, in fact, doing the saving. Now, while the continual practice of sin, as John has talked about, may reveal one's salvation to be false, I do not believe we can lose our salvation for failing to confess a particular sin. On the other ditch, the other side of the road, our salvation doesn't mean that we never confess. There are some in recent Years who have abused the gospel of grace by teaching that God doesn't see the sin of the believer. 
that we no longer need to pray as Jesus instructed us. He only gave those instructions to disciples about confessing our sins before the cross, after the cross. You don't need to do that anymore. I assure you of this. God does see our sin. It does still grieve Him. And it does separate you from Him relationally. Without kicking you out of the family and without invalidating your adoption. It still separates. As I've said, salvation has changed the the nature of our relationship with God as father and child, adopted, it's permanent, it's irrevocable. He's not waiting for you to be bad and go, well, didn't see that coming, gone. You're his child. So he gets grieved like a father would be grieved. It's similar in many ways to a marriage. We, we married Jesus in a sense. We're called the bride as the church. And Jesus then said, well, I'm going to love you unless you commit X sin and then I'll divorce you. And that's because his relationship to us was not based on our faithfulness. It was based on his to us. But like our marriages or a family relationship or a friendship, our sin against one another does create real relational tension and separation that robs us of joy and intimacy and the blessing of what is supposed to be the most important relationship. The truth is, I've sinned against my wife. I've sinned against my friends. And when I sin against my wife, whether it be in word or deed, it's not like she's like, hey, don't worry about it. Let's just move on. There's real tension. There's brokenness there that has to be resolved, has to be confessed, has to be reconciled. She also doesn't sit there and go like, oh, you did that, huh? Where's the papers? Done. We have to have that joy. And that can't happen without confession. Jesus says, yes, I make you clean. I make you as white as snow. But John seems to indicate that our relationship with Jesus needs a regular shower because we get dirty. So the question is, what should I be confessing? And there's lots of things that probably come to your mind like, well, here's the things I should confess, right? There's the sins of, of commission, the, sin, the sins I do. I should do these things. Then there's the sins of omission, the things I don't do. So we easily make lists in our mind. Well, I have this list of do's and list of don'ts. And those are the things that I probably should confess. But in terms of relationship, sin is much more than just a list of do's and don'ts. Sin is what separates us from God. And what can separate us from God may not be in and of itself sinful. It may actually be a really good thing that we have desired and put in the place of Jesus. Now for the non-believer, when we talk about separation from God, we're talking about death. But when we talk about the believer, we're talking about this present relationship right now with God. I think in terms of describing sin, I have not found a better description than Susanna Wesley. If you know who Susanna Wesley is, she is the mother of Charles and John Wesley the founders of Methodism, 
writers of many songs. I always get confused which one's which. But one of her sons asked a question and said, what's sin? And she didn't respond by writing a list. What she wrote is what I think is an incredible description to remind us of the kinds of things that we actually should be confessing and consider whether they're actually sinful to us, even if they're not sinful to someone else. She says this, What is sin? Whatever weakens your reason, impairs the tenderness of your conscience, obscures your sense of God, takes off your relish for spiritual things, whatever increases the authority of the body over the mind, that thing is sin to you, however innocent it may seem in itself. And we all have a Susanna Wesley in our lives. Remind us that sin is much more than the list of do's and don'ts. It's about relationship with God, and there are many things that are good that can hinder that. Salvation causes us to see sin differently, and that's what I mean. And it even causes us to confess sin differently. Salvation gives us a desire for holiness. And did you know that a desire for holiness is actually a desire for wholeness? It's a desire to live in whole relationship with God and even relationship with ourselves and relationship with one another. It's, it's a desire to live as God designed us to live so that we might experience the joy that comes from living in accord with the way He made us. So a desire for holiness is not just a desire for morality. It's a desire to be whole. So in closing... I will refer to one last verse that follows what I just read in the confession. The first verses of chapter 2. Because he follows up his invitation and it is an invitation. And I invite today for you to confess your sins. For all of us to confess our sins to God and to one another. But he kind of gives a powerful statement of purpose for his letter and then a promise. He says, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, right, here's the promise. Because we read that first one like, uh-oh. I'm writing so you don't sin. Already screwed up, John. He says, but if anyone does sin, yes, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the atoning sacrifice, the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of anyone who would be saved, the whole world. See, John's trying to help his brothers and sisters, and for his brothers and sisters, like to help each other to not sin. But at the same time, he acknowledges the reality of our lives. We are likely going to stumble. And in light of Christian sinning, he says we ought not resign to this without a fight or pretend that there's no fight to have. There's a reason why Paul calls it the fight of faith. It's not the pleasure, leisure cruise of faith. It's a fight to it. The cross reveals something that's really powerful. And for those who are reluctant to live in the light for fear of being rejected by God or one another, let me just assure you of this truth. 
the cross reveals to us that God planned for our failures. He planned for them. It's not as if he goes, never saw it coming. He sees more of your sin than you will ever know or see. Sins you wouldn't even think to confess. Unintentional sins. He planned for your failures. So there's no healing in hiding. There is no freedom in darkness. There is no life in silence. But because we have an advocate, there is no fear in confessing. This is what Paul boldly declares after remember he revealed his struggle. Like, I'm not doing the things I want to do. If you keep reading, here's what he says at the end. I'm doing the things I hate. And what does he say in Romans 7, verse 24? Wretched man that I am. I'm horrible. I can't get it right. I keep screwing up. And he says, who is going to deliver me from this broken body of death? Verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord! Exclamation point. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. You must always read in Romans 8, verse 1. There is therefore now, not will be. For those who are in Christ, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We confess our sins because Jesus is perpetually standing before the Father, interceding for us, pleading for the lives of those He loves and those He saves. And He stands before the Father and He says, I died for that. And I paid for that. And I covered that. This is the message you have to preach to yourself every day. And the message you have to preach to your family and the message that that world desperately needs because everyone knows their own guilt and shame even if they don't want to admit it, but they don't know the radical love and grace of Jesus Christ. Jesus did not come to save the healthy or the righteous. He came to save the sick and the sore. He came to save sinners. And so, if you are here today and you think or believe you have no sin. Jesus has nothing for you. Nothing. Christianity is not for the strong, but it's for those who are willing to admit and confess that they're weak. Those who are willing to cry out for a Savior to say, I need someone to rescue me, not from the evil out there, but from the evil in here. People who are willing to say, I am desperate for Jesus now and I'm going to be desperate for Jesus tomorrow. And I need Jesus not just to save me, but to keep on saving me. What do you believe about God's holiness? It has less to do with behavior and more to do about your disposition and your understanding of your relationship with God. Amen? Let's pray.